Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis 38. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 and 11 through 30. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the the Adulamite, to to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to, to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And, he sa- and she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. 
And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm sure that some of you are wondering, why did we just read that story? You may be wondering, why is this story in the Bible? <laughs> why, is this in, why is this story in, in this series about the life of Joseph? We're supposed to be talking about the life of Joseph, right? Well, there, there's several reasons that it's here and why we are still covering it in this series. First of all, mainly that just... God is the author of the Bible. You know, God used men to write the scriptures, but his Holy Spirit inspired them to write certain things, to include certain stories. And he did that for a reason, and he wants us to know them and to understand them and learn from them. Secondly, I'd remind us all that when we began this series back a few, a few weeks back, looking at chapter 37 and verse 1, it says that these are the generations of Jacob, meaning that this is the story of Jacob's family. It's not just Joseph's story. It's the story about Jacob's sons. Joseph features most prominently since he is the protagonist. He is the main character. He's the good guy. But there's other characters here that we need to understand and that we need to understand how God is working in them. And we saw last week that God is beginning to work in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. He's beginning to change these wicked men. He's bringing them to repentance by Joseph's rough treatment of them in Egypt. He's Help. He's bringing out that their remorse, their, their awareness of their guilt, their awareness that they deserved to be punished for what they had done. Their awareness that what they had sinned wasn't just against Joseph or against Jacob, but it was against God himself. So we need to understand how God is bringing about this transformation and how he's actually going to use Judah from this point forward as a new leader among these other brothers. In, in leading that change and that transformation. So that's the second reason why we need to know this story. Thirdly, we need to get used to hearing these stories. Because these stories, whether you, you, we are aware of it or not, are all around us. These kinds of stories surround us. They are in our families. They are among our neighbors, among our co-workers and friends, among the friends of our children. We have to learn to hear these stories, to embrace them, and to not look away. 
And if this is similar to your story, if you can relate to either Judah or Tamar, you need to know that God cares about your story. That's why this story is here. Our temptation in our culture and our society is to brush these kinds of stories under the rug, to hide them, especially in the church. We don't like these kinds of stories. They make us uncomfortable. They feel inappropriate. We don't want to hear them, but we need to. Because if this has been like your story, you need to know that God sees and he cares. He includes stories like yours in his word. And so to understand this story then, we need to rewind a little bit. I realize that we, we, we'd gone all the way up to, through, through chapter uh, 40, uh, 43 in the life of, of Joseph, but now we're rewinding. We're going back to chapter 38. And where, where 38 begins is exactly where 37 left off. So it says, at that time, Judah went down. So what time was that? This is the immediate aftermath of, of the brothers uh, abusing jo- J- Joseph and selling him into slavery and, and deceiving Jacob about, about what they'd done to him. So we're going all the way back to the beginning of the story. But what happens in this story is that this, the, the entire period, that, all the events that we've covered in the life of Joseph are encapsulated in this one chapter. What's happening back, back home, back in Canaan, back with Joseph's family. This is the only story we know of that happened during that period. So the story actually spans at least about 21 or 22 years. So it begins with immediately after the sale of Joseph, but it goes all the way up to right around the time when Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt. It was either right before that first trip or immediately following their return. So that's why we're going back and we're looking at this story now, because it ties in right at this point to the story to where we've come so far. And so we can summarize this story then under four headings. The first heading is Judah's sins. We can look at then Tamar's revenge, then Judah's repentance, and finally God's redemption. Once again, those are, those are Judah's sins, Tamar's revenge, Judah's repentance, and God's redemption. First then, we look at Judah's further sins. Now, remember then, we're, again, we're coming immediately after the sale of Joseph. And whose idea was that? That was Judah's idea. It was Judah who said, what gain do we get from just killing him and, and hiding that? And hiding, covering up his blood? Let's sell him. Let's at least make a buck off of him. That's the character of this man moving into this story. But we see how he goes even further. He goes way beyond that. First of all, he takes for himself a Canaanite wife. Now that is of note. Because Judah's father, Jacob, had to go back to his mother's family and kin to get a wife for himself. That's where he met Rachel and Leah. Judah's grandfather, Isaac, his wife was brought to him back from his mother's and his parents' kinsmen back in Mesopotamia. Abraham said, please do not find a wife for my son from among the Canaanite women. And if you remember Esau, he did get a Canaanite wife. And in his story, that was part of the strife and the, 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 the tension that, that caused in his family. So Judah's not making wise decisions here in terms of who he chooses to marry. We see also that Judah raised wicked sons. 
Now, it's true that, that, that Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, both suffered the consequences for their own actions and their own decisions. It was their sin. But their, their behavior does not reflect well on Judah. It is obvious he did not raise his sons to fear God and follow him. He also married his son Ur to a Canaanite woman. So he was letting his son commit the same indiscretion that he had done. But then after he had married his son to her, he backs out of this agreement with Tamar of giving her to his youngest son, Shelah. Now, this is the weird part, okay? This is a little bit strange to us. uh, But this is a, a practice that was commonly done in the ancient world. It was actually commanded even by the, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, to be practiced among the Israelites, that if a, man got, if, if a man took a wife and he died while she was still young and she had not borne any children, that his brother would take the responsibility of marrying her and having children through her. This is a practice called leveret marriage. And it was common. And it, 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 it was a way of assuring that this man's legacy was upheld. It was continued, that this family's name was able to endure to the coming generation. It was also a way to make sure that these widows were provided for. That's the other side of it we don't realize, that in ancient world, to be a young widow with no children and no prospects was a very difficult, scary place to be. So this practice of leveret marriage was actually a way of providing a way that they would be provided for. They would be cared for because the, the, new, the family wanted to care for the sons born through this woman. So that was her way of making sure that, that she would have a way of living. But, Tam- but Judah backs out of this agreement, thus condemning Tamar to a life of marginalization, of poverty, and of shame. He sent her back to her parents' house. So yes, she would have had a place to go. She would have had food to eat. But it was a very shameful existence. It was not a good situation for her to be in. It's far from ideal. It is not what they should have given her. We see also that Judah continues by acting uh, in ways that it's sexually immoral, even foolishly. Not only is he immoral, but he goes to the point where he is giving away his, his signet and cord and his staff. These items were valuable. They were signals not only of his identity, but of his office. This signet was a cylinder that bore his seal that he carried on this necklace around his neck. And it was an identifier, it was a marker of who he was and of his status. The same with his staff. He shouldn't have been giving these things away. (laughs) So not only was he acting immorally, he was acting foolishly. But then when she disappears, he's willing to hush it up. He wants to cover it up. So he's not only willing to commit these indiscretions, he wants to hide it. Judah really makes no good decisions (laughs) in this story up to a certain point. And then when when the truth comes to light and when they find out about Tamar's pregnancy, his reaction says, let her be burned. Now, in all reality, yes, there were harsh punishments for women who had children out of wedlock in the ancient world. It was not normally being burnt to death. That is extreme. 
That was not common. So Judah is also showing that he is vindictive. He is overly violent in wanting to punish Tamar and to conceal his own guilt. So we see in this story, especially in light of what we've seen in the story of Joseph, Judah commits every single sin that Joseph doesn't. We've seen continuously that Joseph is a faithful and just and righteous man, even in the face of adversity, even in the face of when he's treated unfairly. But Judah, when he has everything, when he's perfectly comfortable, runs headlong, eager into sin. He is not a good representative of what this family is supposed to be. And yet... This is the man. This is the man that God, for some reason, chooses to use to turn this family around. And here's how he does that. The next thing we see is Tamar's revenge. Now, it, it's, it's quite easy to read into this that, that Tamar probably felt a good deal of frustration perhaps anger and bitterness toward Judah and toward this family that had just shunted her aside and had condemned her to this fate. But remember what we said about the, 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 the condition of these young childless widows at that time. Her actions in a large degree is an act of desperation. She is desperately trying to find a way to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be cared for and provided for, to get someone's attention. So she's also a sympathetic character, much like, uh, if you're familiar with the story of Les Miserables, much like the character of Fantine. In the story of Les Mis, we meet Fantine. She is a, a, a beautiful, lovely teenage girl but has no family. She's an orphan, and she lives in Paris, and she meets this 20-something-year-old student at the University of Paris. She falls madly in love with him, and as long as he's in Paris in school, they have a great time hanging out with all their friends. But then he leaves, just drops her suddenly. He goes back to his home to start his actual family, to build his career, to do his duty toward his birth family. But he leaves her because she's a nobody. And he leaves behind also the daughter that they had had together. And as the story progresses, we see Fantine more and more desperately trying to provide for herself and for this child. Her desperation then leads to poor choices that leads her into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole where she's trapped, where nobody helps and nobody sees. And it eventually leads to her demise. She's such a tragic, sympathetic character. And in many ways, Tamar is a lot like that. She's, des she's angry, she's vindictive, but at the same time, she's desperate. She needs to be seen. And if that is like your story, if you at some point, any point, have been 
the victim of abuse. And you can relate to that. You know what it's like to more than anything just want to be seen and to acknowledged, to be acknowledged. But I'd encourage you, don't do what Fontaine or Tamar did. Don't give in to desperation. Do not resort to wild acts of desperation, either to get back, to get someone's attention, or to just, you feel like it's what you have to do to survive. Look for help. Seek help. Keep knocking on doors until someone is there who will help you. Because you're not alone. You're not alone. We can know for certain that God sees you. We know this from a story early in Gen- earlier in Genesis. In chapter 16, we see the story of Hagar. Hagar was a slave girl. She was the slave of Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham. And remember how Sarah told Abraham, go have a child through Hagar. And then after they have a child, Sarah says, okay, throw her out, because I'm not pleased with the way she's treating me anymore. Hagar flees. And she's afraid that she and the child will die, but then God comes to her and says, there's a way that I will take care of you. I will see you. And Hagar acknowledges, you are a God who sees me. So if this is your story, or if you have a loved one who has a story like this, God sees you. God knows. Do not give in to desperation. So even though she was desperate, even though she's sympathetic, what she did was wrong. And she knew it. That's why she engaged in this act of deception, to deceive Judah. And yet, again, we see through her action that she is showing greater faithfulness that God, to the promise God had given to the family of Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would give him descendants, that through his line of descendants, the entire earth would be blessed. Judah forsakes that promise by forsaking, making sure that his sons have descendants. But Tamar is faithful to that promise. And God uses Tamar also to call Judah to account. So again, she's sympathetic. God uses her for his purpose, but she's not innocent. Nobody in this story is innocent. This whole situation is a shameful, awful mess, and everyone in it is dirty. Everyone in it is a sinner. And each sin leads to more sin, and it contaminates everyone and everything. But isn't that just like us? Isn't that in many ways just like our lives? None of us here are wholly innocent. None of us here are wholly clean. None of us has ever done even one thing, just one thing perfectly well or with perfectly pure motives in our entire lives. None of us have. So on the one hand, then, as we've seen throughout the story of Joseph, that Joseph is a type of Christ. He is pointing us forward to Jesus, to our righteous Savior. But Judah and Tamar, on the other hand, remind us of ourselves. They represent us. There are representatives in this story. Welcome to Christ Church. We love you. You're a sinner. We all are. 
Judah and Tamar point the finger back at our sins. Because our lives are all a mess. And the Bible reflects that so clearly. And it depicts it so unflinchingly. Because God sees our mess perfectly clearly. There is nothing that we can hide from him. God sees, even if we have not done the exact same things that Judah and Tamar have done, he sees what goes on in our thoughts. He sees what goes on in our hearts. And we cannot hide that from him. We can't hide it just like Judah tried to do, sweep this whole thing under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. So what should we do then? What must we do? We repent. Last week, Tim showed us how God was beginning to change the lives, how to change the hearts of Joseph's brothers, and we saw how they were taking these first steps down the path of repentance, that they were rec- they had recognized their sin, they acknowledged it, and they showed remorse for it. They acknowledged also that they deserved to be punished, and they understood their offense was against God, and not just against Joseph and against their father, and, but yet, but there's something still missing. If you remember from last week, there was something that still had not happened yet in the lives of Joseph's brothers. They had not begun to change. Their repentance had not yet yielded to a new life. They had not yet walked down a new road. Remember that repentance is both turning away from sin and it is turning toward God in faith. It is leaving one thing behind and pursuing something else. And we're going to see that start happening in this story. This confrontation takes place, as we saw, right around the time when the brothers were taking that trip to Egypt, either right before or right after. This is around the same time. God's using this confrontation with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to change him and to begin to further the process of change in his brothers as well. So thirdly, we see in this story Judah's repentance. And what brings Judah's repentance about is a very interesting phrase. We see in verse 25 when Tamar sends the signet cord and the cord and the staff to Judah and says, Please identify these. Does that sound familiar at all? If you remember back to the second sermon in this series about when... Joseph's brothers sold him and lied to Jacob when they brought Jacob Joseph's torn and bloodied and dirty robe. They said, please identify if this is your son's robe. So God is using these words from Tamar here. Not only to convict Judah of how he has sinned against her, but of how he has sinned against Joseph and against his father, and Judah is undone. He is completely exposed and laid bare before God. There is nothing he can hide anymore. They convict Judah completely, and he acknowledges his sin. Verse 26, he says, She is more righteous than I. Notice he's not saying she's righteous, that she's innocent, but she is more righteous than I. My sins are greater. 
My sins are greater in number. My sins are greater in severity by far. She is more righteous than I, and I cannot hide it anymore. But not only does he acknowledge his sin, he then assumes responsibility for his action by assuming responsibility for her, taking her into his home to provide for her and for the children that he had by her. But then he also refrains from falling into the same sin, same sin with her again. And as we, as we continue in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see further how Judah, who was once so selfish, who was once completely wicked and perverse, is transformed and is changed into a compassionate and self-sacrificing leader of his people and of his family. Sadly, we've seen many examples in our day and age in our society of sins resembling Judah. These, you know, there's all kinds of scandals that are happening weekly, it seems, not only in the, in the halls of government and power, but also in, in, in some, with some celebrity uh, actor or whoever, or even within the church. We see leaders in the church caught in devastating scandals. We see these kinds of sins break apart families that we know, perhaps even our own families. But we need not look that far. We can only look in the mirror. Because we should ask ourselves, how have I been unfaithful in my significant relationships? How have I broken promises and commitments? How has I been unfaithful in not believing and acting upon the promises that God has given me? And how have I oppressed and marginalized and pushed aside those who needed my help? And I would not give it. We resemble Judah in more ways than we wish to acknowledge. How can we know, then, if we have truly repented of that? Remember, as we said, that repentance, it's turning away from sin. It is turning toward God in faith. It's leaving one road that is leading us down one path toward death. And it is walking down a new road, a road that leads us to life. And we've seen that the, 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 the theme of this series of the life of Joseph is that we are following and walking, the, we are following Christ and walking the way of the cross. That is how we can describe Joseph's life, that he is walking in the way of the cross, that he is, he is a type of Jesus. He is a righteous man who suffers unjustly. And he suffers unjustly in the place of his family. He was punished for something he did not do. And so in that regard, he points us forward to Christ. And in the same way that Christ brings salvation to the whole world, God used Joseph to bring salvation and deliverance to his family. But Judah is showing us another way to walk in the way of the cross. Another way to follow in the path of Christ. And that is by leaving behind his crooked and selfish and evil ways. He is openly acknowledging and confessing his sin. 
He is seeking forgiveness. He is making restitution. And he is no longer trusting in himself, no longer trusting in his own strength, in his own wiles, in his own wisdom, and in his own pretended righteousness. Judah is beginning to walk the way of the cross by throwing himself, casting himself completely upon the grace of God. And the life of the Christian, that's how we live it. This is how we walk in the way of Christ, which is a life of continual repentance, of continual acknowledging of our sin, turning away from sin and death, turning toward life and obedience. And we are continually casting ourselves upon the mercy of God. This isn't just about when we become Christians. This is about how we live every day as a Christian. We are casting ourselves upon God's mercy. This is how we walk in the way of the cross. So in that regard, what sin then is God confronting you with today? What has he been confronting you with this week? How has God shaken you up as he shook up Judah and he shook up his brothers? How is God calling you to repentance? Because the reality is that whether you've been faithless and abusive and perverse like Judah, or whether you have been victimized and acted in vengefulness and desperation like Tamar, there is room for both of you at the throne of grace. There is room for all of us at God's throne of grace, and we can know for certain that God will receive us there and will grant forgiveness. How can we know that for sure? How can we have certainty of that forgiveness? Well, because of a baby. It's the final point in this story that we see God's gracious redemption. We see in this story of the birth of Tamar's sons, their twins, twins Perez and Zerah, that the birth of these twin sons is an echo of God's past grace to Jacob and to his family. If you look back at the birth story of Jacob and Esau, these two stories are remarkably similar. It's almost a repetition. And so what God is doing here is he's showing us, he's reminding us of how God has been faithful to one deceptive, wicked, selfish man in Jacob, how he has transformed him and changed him and softened him and weakened him over time and brought him to a point where he also had to cast himself entirely upon the grace of God. The birth of these twin sons is an echo of the story of Jacob, but it also is a shadow. It is pointing us forward to the birth of another child, to the birth of the future descendant of Judah who would one day redeem him. We see in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Christ, in verse 3, it says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. There are four women mentioned in the genealogy and the history of Christ, Tamar being one of them, because Matthew wants us to know Jesus came from this union. As uncomfortable as it makes us, as disgusting as it seems to be, Jesus claims it as his own. 
Why does he do that? Because Judah and Tamar, remember, are like us. And we are like them. And Jesus came to save people like us. We know that because Jesus came from people like us. If Jesus came for Judah and Tamar, came from Judah and Tamar, then he certainly came for them. And if he came for them, he came also for us. We can be certain of that. The story of Judah and Tamar is disgusting. It is uncomfortable. It is messy. It is hard to hear. And yet the story of Judah and Tamar is so important for us to understand because it tells us who the gospel is for. It tells us who we really are and why we need the gospel. And it assures us that Jesus still sees us and he loves us. Even though this is what he sees. And we can rest in that. We can trust in that. Let's pray.